Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 220 of the Chills of Will podcast. A pleasure today to be speaking to Anefiak Ekpadam. And it goes by Neef. Can I call you Neef or would you rather not? I know Neef is all good. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, my mom calls me. Okay, everyone calls me that. (laughs) Neef is a writer and storyteller from South whose work documents, community and culture in contemporary Britain. His debut book, Where We Come From, Rap, Home and Hope in Modern Britain, is a social history of British rap. It will be released via Faber and Faber in about two weeks, literally two weeks, today being January 4th. It'll be released on January 18th in the UK. As a journalist, he writes long-form essays and profiles for The Guardian, GQ, and more. From charting a history of Black football culture in South London to mapping the forces of migration and music that formed Jehas, his writing weaves social, cultural, and narrative history to explore the current lived realities of peoples across the UK. His writing has has been featured in a number of essay collections and anthologies, including Murky Book, hashtag Murky Books titles, Keisha the Sket from 2021, and a new formation, How Black Players Shaped the Modern Game in 2022, as well as Safe, On Black British Men Reclaiming Space, and that's from Trapeze in 2019. He was named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for media and marketing. He's a British Journalism Award winner for his work with The Guardian, He's also been named Culture Writer of the Year at the Freelance Writing Awards, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He has worked with Nike, Netflix, Google, BBC, the Premier League, Adidas, YouTube, Metallic Inc., Copa, 90, and more. Good afternoon over to you in the UK. It's morning here. How are you doing today? Oh, oh yeah. Good morning. I was going to say good afternoon as well, but yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm all good. It's been a... Uh um as you say like two weeks out from publication so Ooh. just uh kind of yeah on the countdown now but all good all good yeah. have myself i want to say the the acronym is b-a-m-e mm. is that right for like uh like like a like a royal crowning like there are definitely people mentioned in your book who have that uh, oh uh, M- M- yeah yeah m-b-e um, oh pardon or- me pardon me so I feel like that's next. Shoot, on that bio, you've gotten you've done so much in <laughs> such a short time, right? So pretty soon, right? <laughs> MBE. Okay. All right. You're very humble. You're not going to say anything, but I'll say it for you. Uh, <laughs> the book is a great one. It comes out in two weeks. We'll we'll talk about it in a bit. But um, but yeah, how does it feel being two weeks out? Is it is it surreal? Is it still not real yet? How's how's it feeling for you? Yeah, it's a bit of both, really. Uh, you, it's a lot of not really knowing what to expect. With this being my first book, it's yeah. kind of like a completely new process. I kind of liken it to going to what we'd call secondary school for the first time or high school for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's like that kind of first day, you, you don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's kind of um, waiting to see just how things are going to be. But I'm really looking forward to it. It's like totally unlike anything I've done before. 
And I think I worked on it for such a long time that I'm happy that it's now making its way out into the world and starting to make its way to other people as well. So it kind yeah. of feels like a relationship with a bit in that intimate way is finishing and now it's like going to start its whole own um, journey in that sense. I know there's like a million finish lines, like you finished it, then you finished it, then you got it, you know, edits and whatever. But like, when did you more or less finish it? Like, has it been done for two years? Like, how long has it kind of been done, quote unquote? Yeah, yeah. It's been done for, um, probably done in the broadest sense for about a year or maybe, yeah, about a year, I'd say maybe about okay. 10 months. Um, That's when I did like my final drafts. And after that, I had like proofing and spell right. checking and that kind of thing but in terms of like the actual structure narrative of it all of the words in there that was done about finished about maybe about 10 months ago um yeah. but then we did the audiobook was literally like two months ago so yeah you still have like this nice. continual, continual relationship with it did you get to do the audiobook yeah i read the audiobook for, nice. for four days nice. um so yeah people are going to be hearing my voice for i think it's can't remember how many hours it is but yeah yeah <laughs> Any like any tips, like drink a lot of water, like don't talk the rest of the day. Like, how'd you keep your voice fresh? Yeah, drink it, drink a lot of water. I definitely drink water. And then um the best tip I always got was from I guess the other readings I've done before was just like read it as if you're reading it to a friend or something okay. like that. That kind of helps you feel most relaxed in that sense. Um and then try and read slower as well, because naturally you kind of talk quite fast in those uh situations. Um reading it slightly slower helped as well but it was it was a really good process i really enjoyed it i feel like i learned about the book you reading it in such quick uh, reading the book in such quick succession like that you kind of see it from a different perspective whereas before it's such a obviously like a long process you're going chapter by chapter by chapter yeah i was reading it all in three and a half days i was like oh, okay like i really get huh. the shape in a way i didn't get it before are you normally someone who reads your work out loud anyway even if it wasn't for audiobook like for editing purposes revising purposes yeah yeah no definitely yeah i'd always try to read it out loud and to print it out as well mm. before I, um like turn it in so that part wasn't necessarily new but i think definitely like the volume of reading it out loud you start to see like how many wor words you like kind of have, are fond of and that you repeat quite often or like sentence structure or okay. even just remembering where i was when i wrote, wrote certain things it's uh. a weird experience in that sense oh that's cool some some of the heavyweights definitely have have weighed in uh, the blurbs. Um, Caleb Azuma Nelson, who's a well known British writer for sure, definitely mm -hmm. on the younger side, done some great things. The book I've been waiting to read. Mm -hmm. I mean, how cool is that, right? Yeah, yeah. Musa Okwanga, I want to say he does like a lot of with like with football, right? With soccer. Yeah, yeah. He has a brilliant podcast called uh, Stadio. Yeah. He's an author as well, but um, yeah, I know, I know a lot of people know him for his for his podcast that he does with Ryan Hunt. Yeah. So he writes, it's a rousing, inspiring, often breathtaking history. And they're not lying, these guys. Um, <laughs> like I said, we'll talk some more about it. But um, you know, congrats. And how about before we kind of get into some other stuff, how about um, any shout outs, like any particular places where people should buy the book? Yeah, no, thank you. Definitely. There's um, signed copies at um, a lot of independent bookstores across England and um, the UK. So Pages of Hackney, um, Seven Oaks Bookshop as well. Uh, Libraria, which is in East London. Those are a few of the places uh, you can go to. And I think bookshop.org as well, kind of, if you go in there, that links you into a lot of where the independent bookshops are selling it. Nice. I feel like I saw that on your your website, maybe like a link tree. So are you, yeah. uh, how, where, where do we find you online as well? Yeah, so my website's uh, .com, uh And also, but social media is also probably the best place to find me, um, which is 
and Aphiok EKP at both Twitter and or X and Instagram. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and we're not there, trying to get sued, okay? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can find all the links there. Okay. Appreciate that. I'd love to know about about growing up. You do such a great job. The book is the book is so heartfelt in that you can tell that you're a fan, but it also has like the journalistic I don't know. Objectivity is maybe not the right word. And we'll, we'll talk about that again in a minute. But you do mention, you know, some things about yourself. I want to say, pardon me if I if I got reversed it, but father is from Nigeria and your mother from Cameroon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I wonder, like, are you first generation? Like, I wonder about growing up. I mean, do you speak, do you speak Igbo? Do you speak other languages at home? Were you monolingual English? I just wonder about kind of like language and like your reading and writing life growing up. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, my mom's from um, Cameroon and my dad's from Nigeria uh they're both actually both from quite near each other they're both from quite near the border that nigerian oh, okay. yeah like in the in um niger in the southeast of nigeria um and my dad was from is from an ethnicity called anang which is in like the kwaibom region which is one of the smaller ethnicities in nigeria but um so he's bilingual his first language is anang and then second language is english and my mom kind of just speaks english um but yeah growing up in the house it was interesting in terms of things like books and books were always around, but I hadn't always more just thought of them as entertainment more so. So I'd read, I guess, a lot of um, Chinua Chebe. He was a famous Nigerian author. There was also Benjamin Zephaniah, who recently passed away. He was a, an amazing British author, writer, and so many other things too. So those were some of my really first introductions into literature, but I was definitely like a reader more than anything. And I think that's probably the fondness I still have had for reading then I still have for it now um, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about writing or writing a book or anything or at that stage definitely yeah. I think with parents both immigrated to the country in to the UK to London in the 80s or so mm -hmm. and I think growing up in that kind of community where a lot of their friends pretty much all of their friends had done the same thing in one way or another same with some of their siblings too so I kind of grew up in that kind of um yeah like West African community which is straddled across different parts of South London but also other parts of London too mm. and yeah, there weren't many people that were authors or writers I don't think there was anyone essentially I think that generation definitely had to prioritize things mm. like um, yeah survival and trying to make a way for themselves so that didn't necessarily lend itself to being able to really pursue something as like I guess granular um, and as patient as you need to be as like um, publishing. So I wasn't necessarily surrounded by loads of authors and stuff growing up, which was something that's not that unusual to me, but, and not that unusual to a lot of my friends. Some of like the people mentioned on the blurb, I think similar experiences, mm. but it kind of leads quite nicely into music because I feel like that was real. My That was my first real access point to what I feel like as literature was rap music. I feel like that's where I really learned to engage with stories and lyricism and how you can use words was like listening to rap, both US rap and UK rap from like a really, really, really young age because those were the art forms, especially if you grew up in like black communities in Britain, those were the art forms that because they are so DIY, like they were so mo most readily accessible, even though there were maybe, there weren't as many, um, I guess, novels and stories that pertain to black communities in the UK at the time, but obviously music is so accessible that that was just everywhere. So that was like where I really got the bug for words in that sense. And I think it's still similar. I feel like a lot of my influence, even in my writing draws from um, rap music as much as, much as it does from anything else. Mm. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, before we went on, I, you know, I teach high school English. Before we went on break, we just finished Things Fall Apart. I've, mm. I've taught that probably 15 times over the years. So 
No, like the back of my hand, right? <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> who who are you listening to, like U.S. rap wise? Uh, when I was younger or now? Yeah, younger, I guess. Okay, yeah, I started. Um, I think when I grew up, I'm 31 now, so 2003 was like the whole 50 Cent explosion. He was like okay. the biggest musician. It was like the biggest musician in rap at the time. Um, especially for like my every kids party, every birthday party on TV is everywhere. So he was like, um, was like a big entry point for a lot of people. Not even an entry point. He was just huge. Like, and I don't yeah. think in the UK, although I'd always been listening to rap, even from a really young age, I think on a pop culture level, like he really took things to another level. Like when he mm. came, he all of the TV shows, which wasn't necessarily something you'd see from a lot of American. You wouldn't really see a lot of American rap on TV outside of like the few music channels that you'd watch, like MTV, The Bass or Channel U and stuff like that. I started with him, but then after I got into... Um, I found online, I still can't remember how I found it, but I've always been trying to retrace my steps. But I found um, Most Def and Tilib Quilly are Black Star. And I've, when I found that album, that was like the real entry point into hip hop as a culture and as a lyricism. So yeah. I started listening to that album. Thieves in the Night from the album is still my favorite song, mm. I would say, of all time, favorite rap song of all time. And there's obviously like Respiration, Redefinition, which are all like, they are, when you write them down, they are essentially poetry, like a lot of those um, Most yeah. Def verse. Are essentially poetry so that kind of led me into like the likes of i guess nas ilmatic those albums mob deep the mob deep albums into that new york um i guess 90s era of hip-hop yeah. and then from there started to branch out into looking at other regions of the u.s so then started looking at like souls of mischief and the far side and then going to uh across to la and looking at what was going on in california there and then i guess as i was listening to those things I'd always be so intrigued that they almost sounded like the regions like the New York mm. 90s rap sounded so cold in a way like it sounded like, uh. like winter and but the LA California rap sounded the yeah. sound of it would be um would kind of felt like it matched the climate so I started to then read mm. around what actually produced um what were the social and cultural conditions that kind of produced the music in these different places and that was like mm where I guess like my love for reading that was then paired with like my love for rap because I would just spend hours for with no real intention of just like reading um whether it be interviews online reading books um or just finding um kind of even university papers and stuff where they're talking to to the, some of these direct experiences so that was like my entry point into US rap was um was uh yeah most definitely Lib Quilly our Black Star so one of my favorite albums great album I have I actually have the CD in my car you know I don't listen to cds but i got that one every once in a while like i forget i have a cd player i'm like let me put some of that on you know it's interesting you talk about like you know the different regions and like you said you can it's like hear the climate and that totally makes sense in in the uk do you feel like there was a distinction between like you know i think of like talib pali especially like i think people might call him like conscious rap yeah yeah maybe some could see as like a as an as a negative kind of like corny or you know what i mean did mm. did you feel like that you just were kind of given just rap like boom general or do you feel like there are those genres those like subcultures if you will were also clear-cut um, yeah no that makes sense i think yes i know i think a big difference obviously between the uk and the us is that because the uk is so small that i think there's a lot more bleeding over of of the sounds yeah because and then even like the uk i think i think england is the size of new york state or something like that like england okay. is like really small country although it's populous and but then when you dive into the actual population of the uk i think the black population in the uk is only four percent of the entire united kingdom so we're talking about a really small 
and it wasn't just black people that were rapping, but I'm talking in terms of like the communities that were really buying into the music yeah. and then producing it. We're talking about like a really small population of people. Um, and so I think that meant that there was definitely like conscious rap and um, I guess like more street rap and these kind of things, but because mm. they were coming from the same places and because the seed, they were using the same networks to essentially get out there. I think there was a lot more kind of cross collaboration between them. And then I think that also then goes to something I speak about in the book is the actual history of, I guess, UK rap and hip hop is as much tied in with, I guess, like Jamaican sound system culture yeah. as much as it is with US hip hop. So I think that's also a big thing because I guess it, a lot of the music here is kind of that blend, has been that kind of blend between US rap, but then with um, some kind of sound system culture in that sense. So it's mm. genres like jungle or garage, um, which I guess are te te technically and traditionally not hip hop, even though they borrow from hip hop. Those are um, direct influences into UK rap today, if that makes sense. They're like kind of like the forefathers of UK rap and yeah. grime today. So I think it's like the different cultural elements as well as like the population element makes it slightly different um, in that sense. I appreciate that. Back to just your background, your formation, like what were some of the formative, I mean, what got you into being a writer? Was it again through music? Did you read some of the great Rolling Stone or some of the great music magazines and Vibe and Source? I'm not sure what the the British ones are. What what yeah, really got yeah. you into, into writing? Yeah, no, it's, um, it was a few things. There was definitely I studied law at university, so um, I started university. I studied law, and it was like in hindsight, it's something that I didn't necessarily really want to do. But I think um, like when you have like African parents, like very strict and like very one like very traditional education roots, like they want you to be at that age anyway. They want you to be like a lawyer or a doctor. Okay. Is this kind of like the trope, like like be the professional in that way and then you kind of like oh, yeah I yeah i want to be more creative and yeah 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 so i ended up doing law and then but i hated law so i after about two weeks i was like i hate this but i, I think stuck... it said two years two weeks <laughs> yeah no that no, was quite early on <laughs> i right. stuck with the um, course throughout the three years throughout my undergraduate so i did it i finished it oh, but man. i think what it did it made me like really want to then have something that I really did enjoy doing, like almost like swung the pendulum the complete the other way. Mm -hmm. like, I always knew reading was something that I loved to do. So I started reading again, maybe like the, my last year of university and I started discovering, um, first I was just reading biographies. Like I'd read a lot of rap biographies. Mm -hmm. like I read the biography. I read the prodigy biography. I think I read the LL biography. Like, I don't know what was happening in like the nineties, early two thousands. There's this wave yeah. of rap biographies that um. came out. I started to read those. And then um, when I came out of uni, I start. I then started to read some of the magazine interviews, like the Fader would used to do. The, they still do, but they had like would do the really iconic cover stories. And um, there was a cover story with French Montana, which was written by Zach Bowden, and that was essentially creative nonfiction. That was like my first exposition to creative nonfiction. I was like, oh, okay, like now I want to do that. Like whatever that is, where you feel like you're walking through time with um, the writer and French Montana. I want to do that, and then that led me into like a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, of then learning about what was the classic creative nonfiction like Gay Talese, Joanne Didion, oh, wow. the new journalism movement. And that was probably like, that has been like the biggest influence on my writing mm. career so far is those kind of, yeah, those American linchpins from like the 60s and 70s, mm. then following that. And then I just start to read around whoever their favorite writers were. So I'd read all yeah. of the Gay Talese profiles, um, the famous like Floyd Patterson one, which I think probably one of the best um... profiles ever written and then of yeah, course yeah. Sinatra and whatnot and then he'd go to Lise would say in interviews that um 
one of my favorite writers is Irvin Shaw or F. Scott Fitzgerald. So I go to read their work as well. Mm. So I like, I guess like the more literary influence came from was yeah. studying like these people's work. And so now I kind of see my work as like combining that kind of creative nonfiction with the love for music and trying to pulling them into one space, if that makes sense. So yeah. that was a, that was like where the love of writing came from and the love of um, definitely creative nonfiction and narrative mm. nonfiction actually came from. Mm. I love, love, love the idea of like the writer's family tree where, you know, Gay Talese and who's he reading, who's he inspired by and just really branching out. Frank Sinatra has a cold, right? Yeah, the famous, Ooh. the famous. Uh, That's a great one. Yeah, incredible, really. Have you read the Joe DiMaggio piece as well? Yeah, yeah. Another one of my favorites. Yeah, you're really, really good. Like They're all kind of like short stories. They more feel mm -hmm. like fiction than anything else. And that was like, mm -hmm. that was a big thing for me. That's always what I'm even trying to reach for in my own work is to make oh. it feel as real as possible right i spoke with um greg bishop he's a sports writer and he was saying he went to syracuse and one of mm. his maybe it wasn't even related to syracuse but one of his mentors is gay talese wow <laughs> so i had it set up where he said hey i can have him sign a book for you leave it in new york and i was actually had i don't know if i directly was an email with gay talese but i was like a second hand a friend was supposed to pick up the book it fell through but i was like man gay talese. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah oh my gosh <laughs> As you've gotten into uh, the more recent years, who are some of the writers? I'm, you know, I'm sure you're still reading the the classics and the greats, yeah. but who are some of the the current writers who you just like can't wait for you know her next article or his next book or whatever? Yeah, I think um, now it's definitely based around. I read a lot of more fiction and narrative nonfiction, probably the mm -hmm. two things I read the most, um, and that was definitely the the case whilst trying to write the book as well but always write thompson who obviously are from espn i think is probably one of the best living oh, right. writers at the minute i've i think i've literally read everything that he's written probably mm. five times over yeah and listen to every interview he's done just to try and pick up like um as many jewels and gems from it as possible mm. uh and then also from him i then learned about um gary smith at sports okay. illustrated yeah. i don't think he writes there anymore but um yeah some of the american sports writing i think is like some of the most powerful life in literature, modern literature anyway, that's come out of journalism in that sense. I think mm. it, I guess sports is such a place where um, story is, is embedded in the nature of the games and the, mm. what we bring to the games as well. And I think there's been some great journalism around that. So mm. Smith and Wright Thompson for sure. Uh, then outside of that, on the, more of a fiction side, um, there's an author from New York called Jacqueline Woodson, who yeah. I read quite often. And she has like some amazing novels, Red at the Bone, and another Brooklyn in particular. Um, she's someone I read very, very often still. Um, and then Hanif Abdurraqib, who right. wrote this little devil in America, uh, which is probably like the best, I would say, music criticism that I've read, um, which kind of is he, I think he's a poet by trade. So I think he brings the poetic angle into mm. how he um, situates music in his writing, which I think is really beautiful. And then outside of that, probably the best book I've read in like the past. I'd say five years is um, a book by a guy called David Finkel called, um, what's it called? Ah, uh, oh, it's just slipped my mind. Um, well, he read, there's two books, one called The Good Soldiers mm -hmm. and the second, the follow-up from that, I've just slipped my mind, but that is like probably my favourite book from the past yeah. five years. He's, um, he's an American writer? Yeah, American writer. Um, that's narrative nonfiction. 
I'm going to look it up real quick. David Finkel. Good Good, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. That's uh -huh. that, I think that book is incredible. Like It's such a feat in terms yeah. of um, it's him kind of the, the first book follows. I think it's about 12. It follows a he's following a platoon at war in I think it's Iraq and he stays for them throughout their service there. And it's essentially war reporting, essentially mm -hmm. like modern reporting. But the second book, Thank You for Your Service, picks up from when they arrive back in America and I guess try to rebuild oh, and wow. package their lives after being in like quite horrific um, war for like for over a year. So that's like one of the most powerful books I've ever read. And it blends like, as I was saying, like narrative nonfiction, but then like the writing is really like the rhythm, the cadence in the writing, I think is really strong mm -hmm. and it kind of pulls you along. But then the stories are so powerful and gut-wrenching mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And a lot of the scenes kind of stick, have stuck with me since I finished reading that. So he's a big, um, yeah, he's someone I, I look to quite often as well. Mm -hmm. Going back to Wright Thompson, I think, I think he wrote the piece of, kind of about, about Tiger Woods after all mm -hmm. the, kind of explosive you know affairs and all that came out and I, he's writing about him and like like tiger and like his training regimen trying to be like a navy seal yeah. does that sound familiar that was an incredible article yeah yeah no yeah yeah the tiger woods piece and the michael jordan piece but yeah i remember yeah. um yeah i've read that tiger woods piece several several times and mm -hmm. it's quite amazing to think that he's one of the most famous sports people um on earth and he was able to have that um, level of detail about right. and outs of his life and then when you hear him talk about what it took to report that story yeah you kind of makes you just want to work a bit harder because he was talking about knowing um like where his private plane was landing so he could go uh, and do these different crazy stuff and all of the different people he spoke to what is essentially a profile like a profile is at max maybe five thousand words mm. so work to go into that um piece yeah a real testament i think to his reporting skills as well I'll never forget the line where I, I think it was Michael Jordan was talking about an interview. He said they were like, it was at a club with, you know, Derek Jeter, Michael mm -hmm. Jordan, and Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods said something to the effect. He turned to Jordan and Jeter. And he's like, how do, how do you get girls? And they're like, <laughs> laugh. They laugh because like, you're, but he was like, serious, you know, just so much, so much detail and so many interesting yeah, anecdotes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, I want to say the Hanif has a book coming out this year. Does that sound right? Maybe. Yeah. I think it's a book about um, basketball. Um, yeah. It slipped my mind now. Always well, next year. Or there's always next year. Some of that effect. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, it's so cool to hear about your, your writer family tree because you have such an incredible way of, um, you know, making them more general, more specific and more personal. I wonder about like your interview style, like for this book in particular, like, did you, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, you're in a kebab house or you're in a chicken shop or, you know, whatever, like a restaurant. It seems like a lot of based around food, which makes sense. Uh -huh. But like, how did you how do you just in general, how do you like engender trust in your in your subjects? Yeah, it was interesting with this book. It was because before the book I've done and I still do like a lot of journalism um, culture and music journalism. But within that, a lot of profiles. But I guess because profiles, um, there's usually like a time constraint on them in terms of you have deadlines and whatnot so those are, were tended to be especially for like the guardian and british gq which are bigger publications it means you tend to have less time with the um, people that you're speaking to so and i really wanted to break a big part of me wanted to write where we come from was to kind of break out from that and really get to sink under the skin with people and really spend time with them in that way so one of the things i did then for the book was there was kind of no remit in terms of we just hang out when it came to reporting, I've, it was kind of the exact opposite of what I'd been doing in journalism. We just hang out for 
seven hours, eight hours, 12 yeah. hours. And we'd, I just follow people throughout their days and just do that repeated, repeatedly for about, I did that for about five years, mm. essentially. And we'd just go and say like, hey, are you free today? I'm coming down to Cardiff or I'm coming up to Birmingham. And then we just hang out for, for a day and then I'd maybe come back and see them the next day or I'd go and see someone else the next day after that. So that was like a lot of the reporting process was just trying to spend as much time with people um, as possible in terms of being able to really get to a place where they feel comfortable with me and they seem like, and they, I guess, then feel comfortable enough to open up about, I guess, some of the things that have happened in their life and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the person I actually got that from is uh, there's a, he's at the, he used to be at the Washington Post, he's at the New York Times, I think, is Eli Saslaw, who he does like a lot of um, reported pieces in that sense. And he would say, like, it's just the art of hanging out, hanging around, essentially, mm-hmm. like hanging around people as, as long as you can, yeah. um, and really just get to know them on a human level. And that was like the real process of reporting was, um, yeah, just turning up with people. Some people I saw go, I remember seeing like from the first reporting, there's a guy in the West Midlands, which is um, a place called Birmingham, which is in the West Midlands. There's a guy in the book called Despa. And I think the first time we hung out, I think his kids, his son was a baby. And by the last time we did it, his son could walk. And the last time I saw his son, the son could walk and could I think could talk maybe. Huh. And yeah. So we'd, we'd been doing it for such a long time right. that I'd seen like these people grow over those four or five years as well, which was quite an incredible thing. And I think time is like the probably like in terms of what moves a story along and what makes a story the most engrossing, especially nonfiction. Time is probably like one of the best um, assets at your disposal. Disposal essentially is that if you can have show that movement of time. So a lot of it was just, um yeah, just hanging around, <laughs> hanging around and speaking to people. I'm sure it probably it probably um, evolved as the process went on or but just the idea of like did you have a goal with this book I mean where we come from is definitely about it's about the Midlands it's about South London it's about South Wales it's it really Mm -hmm. gives us up close view of where these rappers and artists come from Mm -hmm. would you say you had a goal in mind or like I said did it evolve as you went on yeah, definitely evolved as as I went on. But I knew that I knew that I wanted to all of those kind of narrative nonfiction pieces I was talking about before. I knew that I wanted to bring that like serious study of people's lives and these communities to this genre of music and to the places that birthed the music. So that was always something I had in mind of uh, when I'd look around, when I'd read all of these pieces, essentially like they're all a like American, and um, so yes. you'd never really see it focus on Britain and then you would rarely see it focused on rappers or people who make rap or have been associated with rap in that way so I was like I want to bring that like um real um examination of people's lives and the and the conditions of places to these communities um mm. across the UK so that was always the intention and then as you say it kind of evolved as time went on as time went on I guess I started to develop started to develop I guess like the kind of ideal ideals and I guess like morals that went into the to the shaping of the book so a lot of it was I think there were three things I settled on in the end I think on the human level I wanted to capture um human life kind of um transpiring in these places then I wanted to capture the movement of the music because I guess in that time period British rap had really blown up in the UK mm-hmm. and I wanted to show not just that transition of it blowing up but wanted to also really show that um, it wasn't an accident, that this was like, there's a long, deep history of, here of um, people and movements and music that has led to us, some of the bigger artists today, like Dave and Stormzy and Central Sea to be in the places that they are, like they come from a real culture and a community. 
And then the third thing, which was like the prevailing thing, which I kept in mind, but everything I was doing was I really wanted to just try and capture the social and human condition in modern Britain today, which is why so much of the book does go to these different places, to, of course, to South London, but then to Wales, to the West Midlands as well. And there were other places that didn't necessarily make it. Like I went to Scotland, I went to Ipswich. Mm. I really wanted to show that because I guess in the UK, which I'm sure it's the same in America, but I guess you can kind of get trapped in like a London bubble almost because yeah, London's yeah. the capital. Sure. So it'd be, it'd be easy to talk about this is Britain and then just to look at London. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to see the span of the country. And I felt like I'd been able to see that through some of my journalism as well. So I, like, I wanted to pull all of those, all of these different places um, in as well and treat them as as kind of equal and, and one in a sense. Mission accomplished. I, I love, I love, love, love books that start kind of in the middle. You start 2016, I want to say gigs. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like a, it's just a really cool introduction to the book. It's like, it's kind of, it's not the end of the road, you know, but it's like, here we are kind of in the middle, kind of like the golden hour, you referenced golden hour a few times or like mm. getting there. Right. Where like, you know, the awards are starting to be won by rappers, you know, grime and, and UK rapper getting out there more in like mainstream, so to speak, pop music. And it's just a little portrait. Yeah. So I wonder why you, why you chose to start the, start the book with that, that 2016 mm. moment in time gigs and just rap is is on its way up it's winning the award yeah i think it was that was like such a it was so hard to to know where to start a book that was like probably the, uh -huh. one of the hard of the writing processes where to actually start especially with nonfiction, because i guess it needs to set the tone hmm. for what's to follow in that sense and so that was a i think the intro was the last thing i wrote oh wow um, so I was really searching for what matches the mood of the book. The book kind of takes us through that history from the rise to the boom and then legacy of, of the music. But what captures that kind of movement in most cleanly and most precisely. Mm. Uh, so I went with Giggs because Giggs is an artist from South London. He's kind of held as like one of the, I guess, um, I would say like kind of like the godfather of UK rap in that sense. Mm. He didn't start, but he's, he's yeah. so well established and his music means so much to so many people that he is like held as like a, he is a legend of, of the genre if that makes sense mm -hmm. i knew that in his story from me myself growing up listening to him i've been listening to him since i was legit like 15 mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i've seen his um rise from like some of these dvds to then mm -hmm. making music videos and then from there to actually starting to make a little bit of money from his career then actually exploding into fully fledged yeah edition and especially because there wasn't i guess the uk rap wasn't like american rap where a lot of the money really only came in the past nine years or so so mm. a lot of us working essentially for free for a long time yeah. and um it was like in a real big example of that and so i knew his story was emblematic of the rise of the genres in that sense and so i was like okay when i was really thinking about what had i what moments had i what moments were impactful um in the music culture and in British rap culture and in black British culture mm. that shot came to mind because um, before then he had been, he hadn't been allowed. So I'll set the scene a little, there's that intro starts with um, their backstage at his first headline show in London. And they're about to go on stage and there are loads of musicians backstage who are his friends also. Mm. And then his manager Buck is saying a prayer to, I guess, kind of bless them on the evening before they step out onto stage. And um, he kind of says in the prayer that there are many of us who started this journey that can't be here today. Some of them mm. are dead. Some of them are in jail. Um, so it's just kind of a kind of, yeah, a message and a quiet moment before they step out onto stage. Mm. And 
I was actually in the crowd that day, so I'd seen, okay. I'd been waiting to see Giggs perform for literally a decade, but mm. uh, a lot of the time the police didn't let him perform. He got a kind of blackboard a lot. There was a lot of issues with the Metropolitan Police who wouldn't let him perform in London. And he had to go to all of these extremes to even perform shows outside of London. So I thought when he actually got to perform, it felt like such a special moment to see some of these songs that we'd lived with for so long, actually live mm. in the flesh for the first time. Yeah. And I think that really captured the moment uh, nicely. So I thought that would probably be the best and most powerful place to start with to show that, um, yeah, this isn't just about, because, you know, I don't actually talk about the show itself. I talk about mm -hmm. everything backstage. So I guess was a good way to start in terms of saying this isn't going to be a traditional history of UK rap. Right. About this happened and this happened and this happened. I'm really trying to show you like the inner lives of the individuals who have paved kind of the way in the mm. genre. Great. A very poetic phrase from that little piece is, quote, sound emerges out of fire. Talking about UK rap and, and grime in general and specifically to, to gigs. I'd love to know about some of the forebears of, of like grime. Like you talk about like Jamaican sound system mm. and all like, I don't know, probably four or five times in the book. And I've seen it a lot of times, too. Is that there's always a big deal made out of like the BPMs, like beats per minute for grime. Yeah, like yeah. 100, 140, I want to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, is that just to really make it clear that it's, like, a, a much faster? Like, I don't know that I've ever, like, being, I think, a hip-hop bit, I don't know that I could even come close to what the beats per minute is, like, in, you know, quantum normal uh, rap, if that even exists. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I wonder about the importance of that. Is that is that just really, like, what sets it apart? Is just that it's so, like, fast? That's really interesting. I'd never actually thought about it in that sense that huh. me must have been a, a fan of US hip hop. I don't know the BPM, but when you right. listen, listening to Grime growing up, that was just something that you just knew that Grime was 140 BPM. I think it'd be stated mm. in a lot of the interviews. And I think maybe it would be, I don't even know why, but that was just such a prevalent um, kind of character, characteristic of the music is like the kind right. of double speed. And I think that's actually filtered into UK rap as well, because a lot of the UK rappers, a lot of them are grime MCs first, especially the older generation. Mm. Um, and they rap quite double time too. And even UK drill is the thing that separates UK drill from US drill is that the the, the instrumentals are a lot quicker. And I think that took a lot of influence from grime as well. Okay, I think where maybe that comes from is that, yeah, I talk a lot about Jamaican sound system culture in the book, because uh, I guess where the first and second chapter of the book look at i guess the entry point of black people into the united kingdom essentially and that started with a generation which is called like the windrush generation mm -hmm. which is, is like one of the first the hmt windrush was a boat that came from jamaica to um the uk and brought like a lot of the first caribbean immigrants to the uk in the 50s i think it was 1948 but in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s like that's when like on mass um Caribbean people from and a lot of them from Jamaica started to arrive in the UK mm. after the world war after the second world war and helps kind of rebuild the country in that sense mm -hmm. but of course they came they brought music too and as they continue to come they continue to bring music too so of course like reggae being very huge but then when you start to get into sound system culture um that's like when you see the first shoots of like black specifically black and British high of genres starting to mm -hmm. emerge in that sense so there are a lot of musicians like Tipper Irie or um, Smiley Culture who were started to then, um, I guess they call it toasting, which would be mm. they talking over the records, but they'd be talking in British accents for the first time and mm. be talking about British life for the first time. And that is like kind of like the root and stem of like where this all kind of begins, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. from uh, sound systems, have of course, been huge in the United Kingdom ever since. Like we have things like Notting Hill Carnival, which is essentially 
um half sound systems essentially shuts down west London for a whole weekend mm. uh, and so a lot of the music roots and stem is there so then you fast forward maybe i don't know a few decades to a genre like grime where to experience grime like a lot of that a lot of the uh, initial innovators of grime their uncles or their dads or their granddads were sound system operators so naturally like mm. that in- through so a lot of grime started on pirate radio stations where mm-hmm. they're kind of doing the same thing they're going back and forth over like a turning selection of instrumentals and whatnot and yeah. i think in that like the music was quite fast as they do that the instrumentals were quite fast as they would do that and i think that is maybe where the speed um comes from um yeah. and I think that's like why the link to sound system culture is so important because it is literally a generational passing down of the baton almost and right. i guess british migration but they're now like the black british population is a lot more there are a lot more ethnicities so there of course i'm from west africa there's people from east africa and all of these different places too but with sound system culture being so prevalent like a lot of the people then fed into fed into that um still hmm i mean i I would guess you know about like twister and like bone thugs and harmony yeah 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 like i'm trying to think like what what their bpm would be you know or what the like their rap style, you know, no, like, you know, it used to be known as tongue twister, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm thinking of one of my students who was a huge, like everything I taught Spanish and he was somehow able to get chief Keef into everything that was done in the class. So, right. He'd be, he'd be drill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Chief, I think he was one of the originals, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was he, was, was his music more derivative of of UK drill or vice versa? Vice versa. So I think he, he was one of the originators. I think people like him, King Louis in Chicago. And then I know in, that was I can't remember even what year that was, but mm. uh, obviously that started to blow up, and then when it kind of jumped across the pond to the UK, mm-hmm. first iterations of UK drill were kind of very reminiscent of that, like the big like booming beats and instrumentals. Yeah. But then it started to like I guess settle in to the UK. The instrumentals started to change, and then that's when it started to get quite quicker, and you saw mm. some of the influence from grime. And from UK rap started to filter in and yeah, the instrumentals got a lot quicker. So it kind of yeah. into its own like subgenre in that sense. Well, I love the the way your repetition in, in the chapters about like the Windrush generation, which you just mentioned, the this is how they arrived here. You have an interesting story about so and so and how he came or how her his parents came, and then it's this is how they arrived here, really driving home the point for the reader that so many of these individual stories lead to this one, to these big stories. You mentioned the British Nationality Act. I mean, there's the the classic, unfortunately, it's all around the world, right? Ideas of like, hey, we need help. We need help rebuilding the, the country. Yeah, yeah. And then when, when a scapegoat is needed, oftentimes, right? The immigrants were the, yeah, have been yeah, the scapegoats. Yeah. So you do a great job tracing the history as well. Man, I feel like Cecil Morris, you talk about like, like with the pirate radio, maybe he already does. I feel like he needs his own movie or his own book. Yeah, no, definitely. I would love, to, I would pay to see that. Definitely. Man. Yeah, but I can tell you about him. He so Cecil Morris. He's a he's from Birmingham, and he was um, a Jamaican is a Jamaican immigrant. Still lives in Birmingham today, and he came in the time of like the Windrush generation when they came into Birmingham, and he essentially started like a, the most made the major pirate, black pirate radio station in the in the city, and he started it out of initially just not being able to hear his music anywhere on the radio. I think there were two radio stations at the time in like the sixties and seventies. And they were both, I think state run. And when he mm. went to them asking like, can you play some reggae? Can we have some DJs on there? They were kind of like, kind of kind of shunned him away, laughed at him a bit. And he was like, well, mm-hmm. I'm just going to start my own station. 
And he, he essentially did that. It was called PCRL and became like a huge radio station mm. um, in Birmingham. And I think spread eventually ended up spreading out from just like the Caribbean and black community into other communities too. Mm. Um, but whilst he was doing that, because pirate radio stations are illegal and they were illegal then. So <laughs> we play in this massive game of cat, cat and mouse with the DTI. Yeah, where the, um, I guess the um, organisation branch of the government tasked with essentially stopping a lot of these extraterrestrial extraterrestrial um <laughs> radio stations so he would yes i think he set up over i think it was over 500 times he ended up setting up in Ooh. tower blocks across Birmingham. yeah and he'd go they he'd get raided one afternoon they'd pull his station off air he'd set up again the next morning um and then they'd, the same would happen and the same would happen and the same would happen yeah but um he said he started to notice in the community the radio station was really taking a powerful hold because people would come to him and say, we finally have our music to play. Right. And it would then just be on music. He would, then they'd broadcast um, like funeral dates and all of these really mm. important community aspects to people who maybe couldn't get in touch with relatives or loved ones. Yeah. And it became a real linchpin, a real bastion of the community in that sense. So yeah, he's got an incredible, an yeah. incredible story. And then to be able to like sit with him and hear that and hear him tell his yeah. story be able to trace that was like was really special too because i think that does show a lot of the lineage of what we've been talking about mm. you see how connected it is to a lot of those individuals who initially came to britain yeah i i think you said five i think it might have been 1500 you referenced in the book the amount of times he had to move yeah. but you know i mean he, he probably obviously he probably couldn't even count like um, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? so i'm trying to figure his generation so i mean would he be like in his 70s now maybe or yeah, I think he's either in his seventies or eighties. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And yeah, you yeah. talked about you wrote about how there were times like in nineteen eighty one was seemed like that there were a lot of uprisings, police against police brutality, and just the way that people in in poverty were often treated. You talk about how you put on the music to calm the nerves, right? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think the radio station started after after there was riots in the UK across the UK in nineteen eighty one and nineteen eighty five, and nineteen eighty one um, there were riots in Hansworth, Birmingham, which was like a an epicenter of like the Caribbean community mm. and um, a lot of that was became out of um, yeah police brutality I think England was in recession at the time in general uh, so there was economic problems there were social problems mm -hmm. and then actual problems on top of that and I think as happens with those time periods you had people kind of capitalizing on the frustration of the time by then blaming essentially immigrants so a lot mm. of communities were being blamed for a lot of the trouble that was going on in the UK and then I think also the police yeah, essentially, yeah, there was a lot of police brutality when you read accounts mm. of this, hear people speak about it. That was a major factor too, people feeling like they were being treated like dirt, essentially. And so from that, that kind of laid the kindling for the uprisings and riots that happened in 1981. And when that happened, um, Cecil, his, I guess, motivation was to stop the young people in the community going out to join mm -hmm. and calm their nerves. So he started to play music from um, his first pirate radio station from his bedroom mm -hmm. and grew and grew and grew and then 1985 riots came back to Birmingham and he did the same thing again and I think after that then people started to write him saying like we really need this station like yeah he's a DJ can you teach him how to DJ have a son who does xyz and so you really see like the the role that the station played in the community and not just on a musical mm. level I might embarrass myself with this British reference here but this idea of him you setting up and then the 
police would come and raided and he changed like almost like a benny hill episode no yeah, 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 yeah. Cat and mouse, man. Yeah, cat and mouse, essentially. Dude. So interesting. The book kind of goes on a little bit more to so solid. I'm so I, I'm thinking of like Wu Tang Clan or something like that. But even the Wu Tang Clan didn't have like 30 in the crew, like he talked yeah, about, yeah. right? <laughs> and so like in around 2001, they were winning some big awards. They were really making a name for themselves. Would you call that Garage at the time? Yeah, yeah, style? Like, yeah, yeah. I think over here we call it Garage, but okay, say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it was garage, like UKG or garage, as it's called. Uh -huh. In that, there was like the dark, so like garage in general is like quite upbeat. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily uplifting, but kind of party and club music essentially. Uh -huh. Would party, and there's a lot of R and B samples in there, that yeah. kind of. Thing. Um, but then, so solid's take on garage was like slightly darker in a sense. Right. Like, a lot of instrumentals were darker in there, essentially talking um, about street life, essentially like which mm -hmm. you hadn't necessarily heard in Garage at that time. And I think that's where you start to see the influence from US hip hop even more because, um, yeah, that comparison to the Wu-Tang is, is interesting because that's what the Wu-Tang were doing, social commentary, essentially, mm -hmm. on on music. And that's what So Solid were doing. And I think they, where the instrumental started to get darker and maybe a tiny bit um, more open for MCs to be able to vocalise over them. Right. Yeah, they could then have full-on verses Whereas before Garage was more about like choruses and hooks and sweet choruses. Mm -hmm. and there isn't that much space for an MC to really talk at length. It's more about um, keeping the music going and keeping, making sure the atmosphere in the club stays mm -hmm. up. In sense. Whereas like the darker end of Garage was so solid with doing was less space for rapping essentially. And you see like that's where the yeah. influence from rap really comes in. And they're talking about um, mm. yeah, up in South London throughout the late 90s, early noughties is essentially yeah. what music is and yeah but it blows up they become huge like they were like one of the biggest groups growing up from even when i when I was growing up from what mm -hmm. when I remember like they had number one records all of this stuff was quite unheard of um and they said so they broke a lot of ground and broke, broke a lot of barriers in that sense and were kind of the precursor to grime and uk rap um today when you speak to a lot of the older generation of grime mm -hmm. mcs and UK rappers um and you ask them who was that beacon of a music career even being possible a lot of them will mention so solid because mm. of that journey yeah as the book goes on you get into to despo who you'd referenced a little bit earlier and it's pretty cool because he almost i think he's maybe i think the second to last chapter is about him so he kind of bookends the book the book in some ways but just about in the west midlands and, and grimes beginnings it's interesting i, I kind of maybe 15 years later but like how you talk about like so solid with like their darker music Mm. about how this kind of kind of parallels like the u.s you know maybe gangster rap in the late 80s and 90s you know oh, ice yeah. cube talked about it being like the music like cnn for the hood i don't know if i'm saying that exactly right but just like know. the 80s it was a lot of like boom boom bap and mo mostly not or not all but like very like upbeat but doesn't mean that the what came later was was wrong it was just more honest right more raw yeah and no, i definitely and i think a reflection when you hear about the reflection. stories of Birmingham was like in the in the 90s and the noughties mm -hmm. It definitely sounds like the music was a reflection of what was happening. Uh -huh. Yeah. They had like a really dark period in terms of, I think people talk about in the book, there was like a crack epidemic, again, mm -hmm. like troubles in the UK and all of these things. And I think the music reflected the harshness of what was going on at the time, mm -hmm. especially um, but across the UK too. So I feel like Despo, he was someone that came in, I guess, at the end of Garage as mm -hmm. Grant started as grime was starting and he kind of that's where he kind of picks up the baton in the region mm. it's like a new genre is kind of being birthed out of the old genre and grime is uh, a lot darker than garage um 
the instrumentals are a lot darker, faster as well. Um, and then the the content of the music that the MCs are talking about again is a, is tends to be a lot more focused on like what was going on in like the streets and stuff like that as opposed mm. to necessarily like yeah, grime wasn't necessarily made for clubs in the same way that garage garage was. So, yeah, yeah. For some reason, I'm picturing Shine right now. You remember Shine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, one of like his, I can't remember the name of his. I remember like his first song just blew up, but like, you know, New York, and he has roots in. I want to say Belize. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah, Caribbean, yeah. but just like just dark, but like that New York City kind of vibe. But I wonder about how much of like the he was inspired by, let's say, the Caribbean and vice versa, and and mm. and grime and how all those come together. So you go on and talk about South Wales and Phil mm. and Dell and like the Asteroid Boys, right? Yeah, yeah, and just really, you you map such a you you do such an incredible job mapping just like the, the the immigrant cultures plural and the way that you know so much of it is like a like a seafaring thing that people came from you know Libya and Greece and Cyprus and and all these other countries I want to say Eritrea or Somalia, mm -hmm. um, a lot of it you know kind of like a, a mariner thing, and how they're you know, they feel very much left out of British, the economic, kind of economically forgotten peoples in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And you do a great job too, just really describing the the physical geography of the place. And I really feel like I got to know it. Was was South Wales foreign to you as well? Or is that something you knew pretty well before you did this reporting? Yeah, no, South Wales was completely foreign to me. Yeah. Before. <laughs> I think I've been to Wales once as a kid. Um there's like a mountain range in Wales called Snowdonia, which like you may get to go to on a school trip or something. But uh, yeah, it was completely foreign to me, which was mm. took the longest to report on and took the most research because I didn't really know the genesis of those things. Whereas like in London and Birmingham, I knew like the Windrush generation is such a thing yeah. that you know up that it wasn't that hard to then access what I needed to find out. Whereas mm -hmm. Wales is completely foreign to me. I didn't a lot of the stuff in the book I didn't know until until I yeah. Um, as you say, like it starts with talking about the history of migration into Wales and Wales having one of the oldest black and ethnic communities in the UK because of um, it's right by the sea, it's right by the docks. So mm -hmm. have a lot of um, immigrants come in off the boats when the boats had gone to Africa or the Caribbean or to, to other parts of Europe um, to, I guess, trade. I think it was iron they, and steel they were trading from like mm. the South and coal mines and um that they had so they were kind of shipping those overseas and then when they boats would refill on the other end seamen from um all of these different countries would then jump on board and come back and then some of them just settled in wales and that's mm -hmm. like a big genesis of um why there's like some of these small pockets of really diverse communities of greek people somali yemeni um nigerian jamaican but uh, Bayesian, all of these different people. Mm. And finding that out was fascinating because it kind of reframed my idea of British history in that way too. Um, and mm. then it also showed, I guess showed just how connected the music is to the history of the land. And you say, thank you for talking about the land in that way. But so that was a big thing. I really wanted people to see yeah. feel the land um, and not just maybe experience it through music, but to really understand like the geography um, of the place and how big mm. an influence it has on the music itself and how big a influence like British soil literally has on British rap. Mm. So that was definitely a, a big part of it too. Mm. And I think because Wales is such a picturesque, beautiful country and yeah. Cardiff in particular has like is is a, the capital of Wales. Cardiff is the capital of Wales, but it's by the sea. So it has like a city, but it's by the sea. But then it has these mountain ranges just maybe a not far drive outside of Cardiff at all. Mm. Then it has these so it has like everything in like this span of like maybe 40 minutes so mm. i really want 
bring some of that in because it is such a unique place um, and occupies such a unique place in British history. Hmm. I'm I'm very much tied into my Italian background. Like I've I've visited cities where my family's from and we're in touch with relatives. But like I have a little bit of Cornish background, Cornwall. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I grew up for years thinking it was part of Wales, but it's not, right? Yeah, no, Cornwall Cornwall's a different part of England. It's like yeah. it called Cornwall's like quite interesting in that a lot of what I was trying to hit in the book kind of is represented in the little I know about Cornish history, where mm. even now in Cornwall, Cornish is like its own identity. Right. In, out slightly separate to being English or being British, like Cornish okay. is its own thing. And it has, I think there's a Cornish language still. There's obviously Cornish food mm. uh, and it has like a real strong sense of identity within like a wider mm -hmm. country. That's kind of what I wanted to show with like the communities I'm talking about in the book. Yeah, definitely. About that. It has its own identity within Britain. It's almost an alternative history of modern Britain in that sense. Right. Um, these people have experienced, um, whether it be based on race or class, um, or ethnicity and these kind of things but that was kind of what I wanted to show but yeah Cornwall yeah um, is, yeah I felt like I got to know a little bit of it even though it's not technically part of Wales like you said with that identity and you know Welsh independence and those kind of things I just feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. appreciate that I got to know a little bit I've heard people say, and they they seem like they're always defensive, and they're mostly always white. They'll say in England, racism is not as much of a problem as class, which I'm sure is complete BS. Mm. But like, but I, but you did such a good job. Like, I did see how, and obviously, racism is a huge problem in England. You talked about some of the specifics of it, but I also did see how, like, you you massage it. Actually, finessed it very well about how class. Like, I didn't really know what that meant as mm. much. And I think you did a really good job with, um, you know, with all the stories, all the individual stories, you really get to see what what class means in these certain yeah, parts yeah. of England. And of course, it's only, th you know, it's three cities. It's not the whole country, but mm -hmm. I feel like I got a much better understanding of that. I wonder if you learned anything about about class. Yeah, no, actually, I think class is so baked into British society, which is, it's yeah, it's like entrenched into British society in that way, even in the way it's spoken about, like I feel... Mm going and I wasn't really something I didn't really have a grip on growing up because I feel like I've more come from like a lower middle class background and then going to uni for the first time and then you're meeting people who are whose parents are rich whose parents have businesses or mm. this kind of thing. And then you start to see um how class operates in that way or you meet people whose some people whose parents only one parent had to work and uh -huh. because one parent made enough money to all of these kind of things so you start right. to see other parts of like the class system that you're not necessarily exposed to mm -hmm. and how much it'd be spoken about in you in these places as well was also a, a big eye-opener too and I think that kind of opened my eyes to class but I think it wasn't something I did intentionally like I knew that I was the music of course comes out of working class communities so I knew that was going to be just inherent in the stories because a lot of the people are working most of the people in the book are working class so i knew that was going to be an element of it but it's probably when i went to wales that i learned the most because you have like i think be class will be different depending on where you live so like london being the capital city um you can be a working class person or a middle class person or someone who's really rich but i guess the although the opportunity may not be the same the just the what is in front of you is maybe the same if that makes sense sure. like yeah yeah i know people who have come from working class backgrounds and then gone to amazing schools because just just because the schools are next door if that makes mm -hmm, sense mm -hmm. 
yeah, these kind of things. Uh, or obviously London is the epicenter of in the UK of like business, music, culture. So you're exposed to all of these things growing up or you can see them growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get the train to galleries, which are free, although a lot of people won't do that. But ah. in Wales, in the more rural parts, you start to see class mixed in with the regionality aspect of it. There's mm-hmm. a chap about the South Wales Valleys and a guy called Luke. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about being from a place where there isn't like visible, very visible signs of other things you can do with your life because everything is so far away, like mm-hmm. Cardiff, let alone London, like Cardiff is far away in itself. So there isn't the exposure to opportunities and things like that. So that taught me a lot about class in terms of mm-hmm. how it operates on a regional level too and, and on a national level, because he would say stuff like he'd never, he didn't know private school was a thing until he got to uni mm-hmm. and stuff like that. If you're in London or in Birmingham, you may not go to private school. You may not be able to afford to go to private private school, but yeah. you know you know of their existence at least. Um, and it kind of reminded me of the South Wales Valleys. I went. I was saying recently that I went to America. I went to Charleston mm. in South Carolina, and that was kind of the same feeling, like very rural, more rural place than I'd been to. Like before, I'd been to New York, Atlanta, which okay. big, city. sure. And then go to Charleston, which was a bit more withdrawn. You start to see like how I guess everything isn't on your doorstep. Mm. Um, in the same way and i think then if you add then you add like an economic economic factors into that that will mm-hmm. cause it very difficult um for mm-hmm. people if you have like the same economic level of access or same money that someone who's middle class or or upper class has mm. in the book you go back to south london obviously big city but you know sprawling areas and you talk about cadet and just about how like grime and rap kind of fuse and and also kind of, you know, sprout their own wings and really interesting ways in which they come together and also kind of separate and kind mm-hmm. of evolve or or move on. Um, and so we obviously get to know him a lot more as the book goes on. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting, too, you talk about like like Despa, like he he kind of grows up or feels like he has to grow up and he works at Apple, you know, like the yeah, like yeah, classic yeah. <laughs> like corporate desk job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he's not, he's not loving it, but he's making some money. He feels like, Oh, I'm, you know, more grown up. You talk about Crept and Conan who seem like a big time duo. Mm. Uh, and they're just, one of the things I was so struck by in the book is how much vulnerability so many of mm. these artists show. Um, Conan had that horrible shooting in his family. I want to say his, his stepdad was killed. Yeah, yeah, stepdad. They inspired uh, like Stormzy. He mm. quit his job. Like, hey, I'm going to do music full time, and eventually, Cadet. More people being inspired with Astro Boys, and they're kind of like their South Wales anthem, and they do Broke, and other people are like, hey, we can put our place on the map, whether it's South Wales, South London. So Despa, I guess, right? He goes into the I don't I don't say the podcast <laughs> space, or he become he does this Meet the Artists on YouTube, and that's yeah, where yeah. I saw a lot of that vulnerability. And you were talking mm. about how you got to meet JK and Dabs like in the quote unquote golden hour. I wonder yeah. about like meet the artists and how their vulnerability showed and about how you got to really speak with these guys like on a personal level and not just you, but like the whole country started to see these see these guys in that way. Yeah, no, JK and, and Dabs. I think such a big thing that came out of reporting all of these stories is because as I said, because the music wasn't like, didn't make money for a very long time. Yeah. So until 2014 2015 the music wasn't viable for a lot of people so you have a lot of people turn out of passion now and out of the hope of what could be and the dream of what could be mm-hmm. which forms a lot of those early stories in the book and a lot of the stories in the book is is fueled from that people chasing a dream that doesn't necessarily seem attainable and the human toll the emotional toll the social toll that takes on you as you do that um and i think 
being able to speak to them about that, I think provided a lot, gave a lot of depth, but was also a commonality between them. So when I'd start to speak to, even before I started the book, a lot, some of my, some of those interviews come from like reporting that I do for journalism. Mm. And I started to notice those themes of what the sacrifice people were making for something that may ultimately not pay off. So you have people quitting their jobs and they have children to look after, but they have right. like this blinding thing that they want to make music. That was the case with Desma. That was the case for Daps on the Map, both from mm. um, in the West Midlands and similar situation with JK2. So hearing people pour, pour out those stories was quite humbling in a lot of ways and you can't like not respect them for taking that risk yeah. and gamble in their lives and I think also kind of reflects like a gap the gambles a lot of their parents and grandparents took in that same way mm. um there's an inherent like DIY thing there but um that was like quite special and quite powerful to you because I think it shows like as I was saying the big element big aim for the book was to show that what had gone into this moment of the music blowing up and people now being able to become millionaires and win award mm-hmm. shows and be on GQ front cover, Vogue front cover, all of mm-hmm. these different things. There was a lot of sacrifice and a lot of stories of people who you may not hear about that actually helped build that ground for them. And yeah. used someone like Stormzy from South London, who is one of the maybe the big one of the biggest artists in the country now, regardless of genre. Mm-hmm. You see like the deep history of music in South London and the deep history of people in South London who had been building these scenes quietly before like they had emerged onto a national onto mm-hmm. a national stage and that was something I wanted to show like how connected someone like that is to everything that's come before him and someone like Cadet who was friends with Stormzy um, is connected to that history too and is a living testimony to that history, history as well yeah early on in the book Wikipedia if that's a verb I Wikipedia Cadet and mm. I was so upset to see that he was killed in, a, in an auto accident yeah and- you let us know about his background. You let us know, like you said, about that hustle, about that DIY, about his even doubting himself, yeah, but also yeah. saying, you know, hey, like I'm going to be, I forget the stadium, I'm going to be here in two years or mm. someone, you know, people telling him that like, and then he, he did make it big in, in some ways and he definitely made it big, unfortunately, more so after he, after he died, mm. there was a tribute show. You said, you know, you said it could have been, could have been millions of dollars in fees for like what, 25 acts that were part of it. Yeah. But I mean, it was a beautiful thing, and obviously, unfortunately, it was after his his death. But I wonder what he, what his legacy is, what he made um, from from his career, and how he kind of be how he'll be remembered. Yeah, that was such a, a difficult um, story to write in that sense because yeah, he's another person I've been listening to for years and years and years yeah. and years, um, and his music always had like has a real vulnerability in it, like a stark vulnerability that you don't necessarily hear in music in general i think there's always two kinds of vulnerability in music and especially rap is like there's vulnerability vulnerability on the level of i'm telling you like what's happened to me okay. um there is still sometimes like a bit of like bravado of like i overcame this still yeah, yeah, and yeah. to a complete next level of not only am, have i been on the receiving end of these things i've also done these things that i'm not proud of or huh. relationships with his mum with his father with other with women and whatnot with his family and that stark honesty or um goes to a space where a lot of men don't talk about like the real deepest um kind of vulnerabilities they face when it comes to um relationships or things with their their parents and whatnot so it was like a stark level of um introspection i hadn't really seen before and Mm. that was something he was really known for at the time um and he would write these really personal um, stories and songs and put them out for the public to hear which of course made such a big impact because Mm -hmm. everybody navigating through some kind of personal um, difficulty or something or relationship in their own life which they could relate to and so 
And then he started to, I guess, I guess the flip side of that is, as we say, like sometimes that like, music doesn't always sell as much as mm. um, contemporary pop, more pop leaning rap. Yeah. And so he started to make some of those songs and he started to essentially a few months before he died, he had a um, one of those songs blow up in a genre called like Afro Swing, which was a kind of mesh of rap, Afrobeat, mm. Bashman. Um, and um, that song blew up and now he kind of is getting his just dues in that sense. And then mm. he actually passes away. But I really wanted to tell that story because I felt like his, A, his life is such a living testimony to the music and to the power of the music and to the legacy of the music. I think you start from his family history, I trace that to his family history of, he's mm. the third generation of his family now living um, in Clapham and Croydon in South London, which I think is quite a powerful thing in itself. And then, so he's inherited these genres in a sense, like doing grime was as natural as, as breath almost. And that's what I wanted to show about the cultural mm. element too. And then, but also then I remember, I remember when he passed away and the, the kind of shockwaves that sent through the, um, everybody who was a fan of the music and whatnot. Um, and then of course his family too. But I remember seeing just how celebrated his life was. At, um, his friends started a football team for him at, yeah. of course, sold out show which I tried to go to I couldn't get tickets to because they, oh. they sold out quickly um, and then at Glastonbury when Stormzy headlined Glastonbury the first um, I think the first British rapper to head, headline Glastonbury I think the first mm. solo act headline Glastonbury as well like he tri has a tribute in his set to Glastonbury uh, in Two Cadet in his set at Glastonbury so when I was seeing all this all of these different things I was made me think that he on a communal level not just a music level, on a community level, like he's somebody that's deeply touched people mm. and is now celebrated by his community in the same aspect. So I wanted to show that as well, that um, how, just how how deeply he had, not only was he linked to his community, but had been celebrated by his community yeah. and his community too. And to also show then how much community is a part of of the music as well. Like they, there is a real culture that the music comes from. And I think his life was a real testimony um to that because he essentially used used music to change his life to heal his relationships mm. with his family members and change the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of other people in the process one of the last chapters is is it uh, salu how would you say pause last name oh pause salu salu right yeah. and just about i mean he he literally has a stutter and you even talk i mean talk about vulnerability there was a i think maybe an interview where he almost like couldn't get through it and mm. I, mean, I know you know those can be incredibly embarrassing and just talk about mm. how when he when he hits the mic like just none of that matters you know he's he's smooth he doesn't have to think about his words so you know really cool combination of like really up and comers and then mm. some of the some of the old school ones so, so solid and all of that mm. going along with that same idea i love how the book it's not like okay this story is over with like it's kind of just beginning or it's in the middle you know what i mean or it's two-thirds of the way there or whatever we don't know yeah but it's yeah. also like like despa how he's now moved into like the, the record the recording studio right Mm. it's really like a cool going to be a cool springboard launching pad for so many others you yeah, know yeah. who love the music right there's that great scene where his daughter throws like a paper airplane yeah, yeah. That, that innocence but also with the guys from south wales with the asteroid boys and just like they're not that old i think one's like 27 26 one's yeah, like 21 yeah. but just like what do you do after the music is over and you describe how mm kind of how that that group kind of came to an end I, I think of it like in the sporting way right like what the heck does a guy do who's played tennis or basketball for 30 years mm -hmm. and then just retires yeah 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 right and so there's a lot there's a lot of that really cool like summing up the after the after with a capital a 
but mm. also the fact that hey things are still still moving there's still a lot of change and a lot of evolution and then of course that last chapter with the, the football club like you said that set up for cadet the blaine cameron johnson football club and diy just like a lot of the music in the in the book yeah 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 no definitely i think a big part of what I wanted to do with the book was show the legacy of the music to show like how did the music really impact people's personal and day-to-day lives as much as the big stuff of selling records and tours and this kind of thing. But what, mm-hmm. how did music move through like the everyday of someone's lives and how did, how did the music and how did rap change people's lives in those more quieter ways too. So someone like Pastor Lou, who is like one of the kind of has been one of the leaders of the new school generation of rappers mm-hmm. I thought it would be quite interesting to show that as much as he has had like quite traumatic at point story um, where he's like, I guess, grew up um, drug dealing, got shot, these kind of things. But also it was like music not only, I guess, lifted him away from some of those scenarios, but also helped him be able to speak um, English yeah. fluently almost. Like he'd come right, to right. nine years old and meant that he struggled sometimes with English in school. And then, but when he found music, he found like a clear way to express himself. And I think that's quite mm-hmm. a powerful thing too. And the same with, as you say, with Desper, who'd always wanted to start a music studio, has been able to do that. Whereas for other people who maybe the music didn't take them all the way to um, to stardom, yeah. like some of the actual boys, and they then are now rebalancing and doing other things in their lives. Um, I wanted to show just like how music is threaded through the, like the everyday mm-hmm lives and what the real legacy of the music has been um yeah. in that sense too and to show how impactful and how important it is um to people all across the country yeah kind of like the last question for you is, i guess combining like the music and also just like your your career and what your future projects are like you know in 2023 marked you know 50 years of hip-hop for the in the u.s big yeah. all kinds of celebrations and award shows and think pieces and all that right the old heads like i'm 43 almost 44 back in the day there was such and such and we had tupac and we had you know, yeah, Biggie, yeah. and we had, you know, Bone Thugs and Harmony, and we had this and that. And, you know, th- this music now is mumble rap, blah, blah, blah. I guess my question is kind of, where do you see, like, the genres, plural, going? Are you thinking you're going to be charting? Like, do you have some other ideas about what you'll be charting? And also, like, in the book, there aren't that many w- women referenced, and I don't think that's you, that's your ignorance. I think that's probably, like, music in general, like, hip-hop in general, like, the world in general, that women haven't been given, you know, have been given short shrift, to, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. So I wonder about like kind of how you see the music evolving now that it's becoming popular. Does it does it necessarily have to like sell out? Mm. You know what I mean? Or or and just kind of like where you see yourself in that in that mix. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because uh, that's a lot I, of quite, that's a lot there. <laughs> no, no, it's all good because a lot of the the conversation that you I'd we'd seen happen in the US as like hip hop became such a commercial force and entity, then right. people will start to worry about the legitimacy of the music anymore like what uh-huh. is, is the root still there like those initial sure. elements you went into hip-hop are they still present um does the music have substance anymore is it catering for the community anymore you're starting to see those conversations started to be had here as the music has become like a commercial yeah um in the uk and outside of the uk as well like british rap is huge now all, mm. all in all of these different markets across the world so you're starting to see that conversation had i think there maybe like the i think the I'm, I think maybe I'm I'm always an optimistic person, so I'm always going to say that I, that I see good coming from the expansion of the scene because I think the a lot of these artists are now able to have careers as musicians, which I think has led to 
um even like better albums and stuff now that maybe we yeah. didn't necessarily have back in the day because i guess there's just more time to be able to create something mm -hmm. if you have time you can pour into something in a way that um in a way that you can't when necessarily you're time poor in that sense so i think that's also a big thing and i think that the sounds are starting to disperse and grow a bit more diverse a little bit which is quite cool um which i think is always going to be a good thing so i am optimistic for the future i definitely think there's definitely going to be a commercial element to uk rap now that's that's not going anywhere and i think just as as just as so long it's balanced with um i guess like the substance i think hopefully we should be fine and i think there are good signs of that because probably like the biggest some of the biggest rappers in the uk now stormzy dave little sims um these are people all who have like massive substance in their music mm -hmm. there's another one who many people say is probably the best rapper in the uk at the time at this point in time i'm sorry who was the last one you mentioned potter paper yeah yeah. yeah yeah so a lot of those artists have um real gravitas and real substance and real meaning in their music mm. at the same time so i think as long as hopefully that continues to be the case that um i'm quite optimistic about where things will go and i think as you say then i think hopefully it also opens the door for more women as well because i think where before my the about the barriers to entry are so much lower now like you don't have to be before as something mm. i talk about a lot of the music was coming out of youth clubs or coming out of pirate radio sets which are like very testosterone heavy mm. environments like young teenagers early 20s 20 20 young boys in a room there's like a lot of aggression in those places and you can mm. see in a lot of archive footage and when you speak to a lot of the people that were there they'd say like yeah that wasn't a place that i'd want my sister to go to huh. whereas now you don't need to be in those spaces to make music so i mm. think over that broadens that flattens like the uh, levels of playing field for a lot of people too sure. but I think there's also an attitude thing like people have to be willing to i think a lot of men in a way some ways aren't willing to listen to um women rappers in the same way that they are to men so i think the attitude change is also i think going to have to be a part of it too mm. um and then as for myself yeah i think um my as i guess as one thing i really learned about myself in doing the book was learning i guess like about myself as an artist in that sense and what do i like as i said a lot of my influences come from um fiction narrative non-fiction so those are things i'm definitely going to look to explore as mm. a writer in general um and so i think um yeah i think i'll probably yeah i feel like quite fluid in what i what i yeah. think i'm able to do next i feel like the love of writing will probably guide those things and the love of storytelling will guide those things but i've started to explore um telling stories in different avenues or different um mm. different subject matters whether that be sport football um yeah. other too and so i'm gonna probably continue to look to doing that but i think the themes of looking to document um life in contemporary britain will always remain at the core there whether that's a novel whether that's a book like this whether that's an essay whether that's i don't know a documentary or whatever that is I think that's like kind of where i see myself at for the next four or five years or so mm -hmm. storytelling transcends genres right yeah exactly yeah yeah definitely you have great storytelling I'm gonna ask you a very controversial question. Who are you a supporter of a certain club or Yeah, yeah, I support um Southampton, a smaller club. Okay. In, uh, yeah, okay. so we're actually doing it right now. So I I can say that with a lot more pride than maybe a year ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You said, yeah. You said we. Okay. All right. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I would say to like my brother's a friend, like, what number do you wear? No, just kidding. You know. <laughs> Okay, Southampton. All right, all right. I think you you mentioned your age and you, the under third thirty under thirty a couple of years ago, and it's ridiculous in a great way that you've written such a good book at such a young age. You this this book is so well done; it could be your life's work. But 
I'm sure there are other great, great pieces that come from you. So I really just appreciate you really just educating, enlightening, and really putting these personal touches on the story that, that make this such a good book. So those people listening, go out and get it. You'll be listening to this probably on the 18th of January and beyond. The book is, is now out there in the world. Go get it. And I just want to thank you so much, Neve, for letting us in your lab a little bit and giving us some of the rationale and the background on your writing. Appreciate you. No, thank you. Appreciate you too. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Awesome talking to you. What a pleasure it has been to speak with Neef. Continue good luck to him with his writing and his important work. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Chills of Will podcast. Very excited to say that this episode will soon go live, probably by the end of January, early February, with Chicago Review of Books. In the coming months, you'll see one to two episodes a month that will be featured. The audio will be featured on Chicago Review of Books website as well as a, an interview that is cold from the audio. So you will see in a few weeks, again, late January, early February, you will see this episode with Neef, the audio on the Chicago Review of Books page, and you also see a short written interview that is cold from that audio. Thank you so much to Michael Welch and Rachel Leone and the whole Chicago Review of Books family. Speaking of the Chills of Will podcast, you can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1, the number one. You can also subscribe to the Chills at Will YouTube channel. That is the Chills at Will podcast YouTube channel where you will see this episode and many others. Like what you heard today? Please retweet episode info, share on social media, and also via word of mouth. It all helps, and it is all much appreciated. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Upcoming episodes include an episode with Alex Squadron and his book about the G League, with Karen Outen and her novel. These are just some of the exciting episodes coming up. Bonus episodes. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and these bonus episodes I previously referenced. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. And I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 221 with Martha Ann Toll, whose debut novel, Three Muses, was shortlisted for the Gotham Book Prize and won the Petrichor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction. She has worked as a critic and author interviewer at NPR Books, The Washington Post, Point Magazine, The Millions, and elsewhere. Martha publishes short fiction and essays in a wide variety of outlets, and she is a member of the National Book Critics Circle. This episode with Martha Ann Toll will air on January 24th. 
For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Neef F. Padum, whose work, like Where We Come From, Rap, Home, and Hope in Modern Britain, gives you chills at will. <laughs>